0: Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Steve Holtzman. He's the president and CEO of Decibel Therapeutics, a venture-backed startup developing treatments for hearing loss. Holtzman has been around the industry for more than 30 years, He has had leadership roles at Millennium Pharmaceuticals, Infinity Pharmaceuticals, and Biogen. Little known fact, he was a founder and president of a startup called DNX Corp in the mid-1980s. That company attempted to become the first transgenic animal company to make organs for transplant into humans. Since that experience, Holtzman has been steeped in many of the big bioethical debates of the day, as you might imagine. Over the past year, Holtzman has become more outspoken about a wide range of political issues. We're talking women's health, racism, immigration, and funding for basic science. Over the past year, Holtzman has become more outspoken about a wide range of political issues. We're talking women's health, racism, immigration, and basic government funding for science. He has mobilized other biotech ceos to speak out on these issues that they have historically avoided i asked him why he's felt compelled to become a biotech political activist now before we get going i want to thank a number of sponsors for generously donating to the climb to fight cancer this is the charity fundraiser i'm doing for the fred hutchinson cancer research center as part of my climb of mount everest in spring 2018. thanks to santa Fe as the summit sponsor and to SofiNova Ventures, 5AM Ventures, and EBD Group as Basecamp sponsors. More than $90,000 so far has come in. If you'd like to make a fully tax-deductible donation, just go to fredhutch.org climb. Now listen up for a special deal. The Biotech Showcase, co-organized by EBD Group, is coming up January 8-10 to in San Francisco. Listeners of this podcast can get a $200 discount if you type in "long run," all one word, as the registration code when you register for Biotech Showcase. How's that for a deal? Lastly, the next episode of The Long Run will feature Steve Graham. Graham is the co-chair of the life sciences practice at the law firm Fenwick & West. He has been working with biotech boards, dating all the way back to the industry's founding in the early 1980s. Graham also happens to be black. He recently wrote a revealing memoir called Invisible Inc.: Navigating Racism in Corporate America. In this book, he details a number of slights, subtle aggressions, unfair dealings, and a few scary racially charged encounters. How did he make it? What advice does he have for young people of color? How can all of us create a more inclusive biotech industry? Keep an eye out for that important and at times uncomfortable conversation about race. Now join me and Steve Holtzman for The Long Run. Welcome. Steve Holtzman is here with me today for the long run. Steve is the CEO of Decibel Therapeutics here in Boston, working on treatments for hearing loss and hearing-related disorders. Thanks for being here, Steve. Thanks, Luke. It's great to see you. I want to talk today about politics, political activism, in biotech. And you've been quite outspoken on a number of issues this year along with uh, your your partner in crime, so to speak, Oh Jeremy Levin at Mm -hmm. Ovid Therapeutics. We'll get there. But I want to start real briefly with a bit about your background, who you are. You have, I think, been around for more than 30 years in this business and have one of the more eclectic resumes that you'll see. You studied philosophy in college. Can you start there? Like, why
1: philosophy and how did you get into this business? Right. I should preface it by saying, in all of my companies, I always meet every new employee, and my parting words to them are, you have nothing to be worried about. Your CEO is trained in neither science nor business, and therefore facts will not get in the way of any sort. So, um, Yes, I actually I started uh, college as a pre-med major, got a few credits short of what was then called a zoology degree, had my first midlife crisis. And ended up in initially intellectual history of Europe, and then went into philosophy and got enamored of the field, and did all of my subsequent work and graduate work at Oxford in philosophy. Taught philosophy for a couple of years, and then had my next midlife crisis. But uh, this
0: is when not when you're forty. This is no, this twenty is something. In, the, in my
1: twenties, <laughs> uh, and decided I didn't want to be an academic philosopher. Got very interested in entrepreneurship, and this is the early 1980s, and very interested in the new field of recombinant DNA technology and genetic engineering. And without getting into all of the details, basically as uh, an unemployed philosopher, no one would hire me, and so I hired myself, I got involved with some academics, and we formed in 1986 the first transgenic animal company, and that's how I got into the field. Basically taught myself what there was to know, whether it was about patent law or accounting or uh, doing corporate deals, raised venture capital, took the company public, uh, eventually sold the company in, uh, to Baxter in 93, 94. And there are ethical issues involved with the transgenic oh, very, every, uh, Everything animal- I've been involved with, yes, we were making transgenic animals, we were working on Transgenic pigs for organs for xenotransplantation. So we're dealing with those ethical issues. I testified in front of Congress in the late 1980s about patents on animals, which the first patents on animals were being granted in 1989. So, yes, I was very much involved in that. Uh, and then I moved as one of the early people at Millennium Pharmaceuticals. And so there uh, we were dealing with... Uh, from the bioethical front, all the issues of gene patents again, but also the issues of genetic information and its uses and abuses. And uh, I actually set up a bioethics course within Millennium Pharmaceuticals, and because of a combination of my work in the industry, uh, as well as my background, I ended up appointed to President Clinton's National Bioethics Advisory Commission, and I was the only industry person on that commission. And we rapidly and had to deal with uh, the first cloned animals, Dolly. What about human cloning? We had the first uh, embryonal stem cells and somatic cell nuclear transfer. We had to deal with that. Uses of genetic information and in biological materials, um, conducting trials in people who were not able to give consent themselves, conducting trials in developing nations, etc., etc. So that was an interesting five years while we built Millennium into quite a rocket ship during the 90s.
0: Now, all of these issues that you're talking about, Mm -hmm. I think people would have described in the past as biotech-specific issues. So, It's sort of like a subset of uh, niche issues that apply to biotech and, and what people in this industry do to a large degree, were not part of the big national mainstream debate. Every once in a while, you'd have something like in, uh, embryonic stem cells right. uh, that would reach
1: presidential-level attention.
0: But yeah. for the most part, not not really having a big public debate.
1: Right. I, I think that's true. Cloning with Dolly captured the public imagination. Genetic engineering in the early days did because genetic engineering resonated of eugenics so that's how you got the the creation in the early 1980s of the RAC and why there's a special approval process for that but things like the ethical conduct of human trials it'll hit the new york times when it finds out that someone has done an unethical trial in in western africa okay but in terms of some of the issues we're dealing with today it's it is more insider baseball i think that's true
0: so, so. you um you mentioned you went to Millennium, and that was a, you know, a formative experience for right. many people in biotech. Then you had a, a, a long run there at Infinity
1: Pharmaceuticals. Yeah, I started at Infinity in 2001, and I was there for 10 years, uh, and uh, it was a very successful in many respects, and the, at the end of the day, the drugs, for the most part, didn't work. So, But I left there in 2010, going to do my first retirement when my friend George Skango's Took over at Biogen and he said, uh, you're too young to retire, so why don't you come help me with this place? And I had an interesting five years at Biogen. Uh, to the world, I was head of business development and MA and strategy, but 75% of my job was actually forming a new group called the Program Leadership and Management Group. And that was a group of high-powered executives who ran the cross-functional teams responsible for our late-stage pipeline. And the bottom line is those people led the teams, which in six years did eight worldwide late-stage trials, registrations, and reimbursements. Fascinating experience. You can spend your life in small biotech and see one or two drugs to see worldwide development and approval of eight drugs in five to six years was an incredible experience. You learn about a whole different set uh, of issues. And <clears throat> it changes the whole way I think about drug discovery and development. How so? S- um Right from the earliest phases, you need to be thinking about what is not only potentially an approvable endpoint, statistically meaningful, but what is a clinically meaningful endpoint, and what is a reimbursable endpoint, what are the data you need to amass in order to be able to say this can justify this level of reimbursement against standard of care. And so you really need to be thinking about that from the get-go.
0: You don't want to spend 10 years and yeah. 500 million yeah. of investors' yeah. money and then realize, oh, right. we don't have the data we need
1: for a pair. That's exactly right. Now, having said that, you also have to be science-based. You have to follow the science. Too many good drugs, potential good drugs, got killed by someone doing a market assessment much too early, okay? So I'm not saying throw stuff out. Follow the science. But we do great science in the context of drug hunting, where drug equals something which meets a medical need and can be reimbursed. So it was about, what, 2015 or so when you <laughs> got the call to come here to Decibel? So, no, I, uh, I, I, I told George when I went to Biogen, I said, I can't imagine lasting more than five years in a big company. So I left there five years and one month or two months there. Uh, that was my next retirement. I decided I would do what all, all old biotechies do, go on boards, advise companies. And my old friends from Millennium, uh, Mark Levin and Kevin Starhead started back in 2006 or seven, Third Rock Ventures. And they said to me, well, if you're going to work with young companies, come do it from Third Rock. So, uh, I was actually employed at Third Rock for eight weeks. I'm the shortest tenure of anyone who ever worked at Third Rock uh, <laughs> because by then I was five months into retirement and I was really getting bored. And uh, my dear wife said to me, she said, your avenue of self-expression and creativity is building organizations. Just go do another one. And Third Rock had recently started Decibel.
0: What what were you doing while you were
1: bored in retirement? Just curious. What was I doing? I was starting to do a lot of writing. I was writing about uh, philosophies of organizational development and um, um, mostly that. Mostly um, thoughts I'd had after 30 years of trying to build innovative organizations. How do you unleash the creative power of people, which I think is the essence of what we do. We don't lead or manage technology and science. We lead and create environments for incredibly talented scientists and technologies to realize their potential and in so doing make important new medicines.
0: Well, maybe that's an advantage in being a non-scientific CEO. You,
1: you you know what you don't know. All <laughs> right. So, um, so in any event, um, 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 decibel, decibel, uh, when Kevin talked to me about what was going on and the premise of decibel, I think like most of us, I always thought about hearing loss as somehow electromechanical and that therefore you addressed it through devices. But of course, everything's biology at the end of the day. And I found myself saying that after 30 years of working on diseases that affect patients, wouldn't it be very special to work on something which is not really a disease, it's a human condition, and it doesn't affect patients, it affects people. And that hearing is one of the fundamental senses through which we are in the world, sound, meaningful sound, is at the essence of communication and self-expression. And without hearing, we can't fully experience the joys and benefits of meaningful sound.
0: Every culture, everywhere you go in the world, uh, appreciates music, derives joy from
1: music. Every culture in the world that's ever been discovered has some form of music. And so our vision statement says creating a world in which the benefits and joys of hearing are available to all. So, so that's, that's how I ended up here for one last run.
0: So you got a full-time job. You got your hands full. You're building an organization right. backed by Third Rock Ventures. Mm-hmm. And then uh, November 8th of 2016 happens. Right. What was your uh, reaction that
1: day um, or the next day? Well, um, unlike most, I wasn't shocked. I had been following what was going on very carefully. Uh, had become addicted to reading everything there was on the subject. And so I wasn't shocked that Trump won. Um, and Neither I, was I, and I right. wrote about this. Um, and so what happened the next day was just the reality setting in of the, everything that I was concerned about was now likely to happen. So that was... Uh, my major reaction
0: <laughs> sounds weighty. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. A yeah.
0: lot coming down now in terms of immigration. Right. What, what are
1: some other things? Well, that we're the thing that I felt most concerned about is, and not to sound overly philosophical, but that in the campaign, there were at least two themes One was about social exclusion of people based on criteria having nothing to do with worth, okay? And the second was anti-scientism. And I view those as two sides of the same coin. That what comes down to us from the Enlightenment is in the form of Bacon and Newton... Our idea of science and facts and rational argumentation and rational discourse. And from the enlightened other Enlightenment philosophers, the Hume's, the Locke's, the Kant's, the Rousseau's, is the notion of the worth of individuals. And so I view the exclusion of an individual from the discourse on grounds other than that they have nothing to say, all right, as the moral equivalent of the exclusion of data that contravenes conventional wisdom. It becomes discourse that's determined by power, political or economic or physical, as opposed to the force of the argument. And what I saw in Trump was expressions of both of those. And I was deeply fearful of how that would play out. And as I watched him starting to make his appointments, starting with Mike Pence, all right. Whose perspectives on women, women's health, um, uh, gay and lesbians who should get quote unquote conversion therapy, followed by the appointment of Pruitt, all right, at EPA and a, a, a paradigm climate, den, uh, climate change denier. And then most frighteningly, from my perspective for our industry, uh, Tom Price, uh, at, you, uh, you HHS. All right. That's exact. That's really what tipped the balance, um, for me to start to really write and publish back in January. Uh, um, now
0: why price? Because he was outspoken against the affordable care act,
1: both against the affordable care act, but Tom price believes that, uh, women should be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen, all right, and that women are vessels for procreation, and that's about it, all right, and so a turning back of women's health care services, a denial of choice, and now pulling that through into health care policies.
0: San Francisco in the second week of January is a tradition for me. One of the beehives of activity is the Biotech Showcase at the Hilton Union Square. About 3,500 entrepreneurs and investors are expected to attend. Listeners of this show are welcome to take a $200 discount off their registration. Just type in long Run," all one word, as the registration code when you're checking out. Thanks to EBD Group for its support of the Long Run Podcast. Now, these are all big public issues everybody engages with mm-hmm. in one form or another in an election. Right. Um, but you're a biotech CEO. Right. What was it that made you say, okay, I need to make this part of my job. Like, I have a responsibility here to speak out. Because CEOs generally across America make it their business not to engage for the most part, other than making donations through their company's political action committee
1: or what have you. Mm -hmm. So there is, there are two strands to that. One is in general about what I believe to be the appropriate role of a CEO in a modern capitalist society, which I can come back to or start with. And then the second is the special role of those of us who are engaged in the business of trying to improve human health. So starting with the the latter first, I have a very simple syllogism that goes through my head that runs like this. We exist, the biotech or biopharma industry, we exist to create important new medicines that make a difference, a material difference in the health of people. You called it a special business. It's a special business because um, the output of our labor is intended to improve the health of people. Well, then we must think health is a good, it's a good thing. All right. So therefore, how can we stand by idly when public policies are being enacted, which are inimical to the health? Of the population so if you have a piece of legislation which is going to deny healthcare to 20 million people how can you sit by when the whole raison d'etre of your industry is to improve health if you're going and as far as I know when we develop a medicine it's for anyone who needs it it's not for someone who can afford it it's not for someone who happens to have a Y chromosome Right? So if someone comes out with policies that are inimical to women's health, how do we stand by and say, well, health for some is okay and not for others? So you're making a moral argument
0: that, that these uh, positions are against the mission of the biopharma industry. Right. Uh, full stop. Well, and, if, and then, I mean, you can also layer in an economic, a business argument that if you take 20 million people out of the market who can no longer well uh, get access yeah. to medicines... Well, that's probably not good for the business
1: either. It's, it's a moral argument at one level, but I want to say it's a deeper level that it's put a morality aside. It's in the nature and essence of what we do that these policies are contradictory to everything we stand for. So how can we, without practical contradiction, assert we exist to better the health, right? And not, and then be silent or not supportive. Of certain kinds of positions. I mean, there's a reason why the docs and the nurses, the docs and the nurses came out against the repub- the rescission of ACA. Right? They said we are here to help patients. We are on the front lines. This is harmful to our patients. We cannot stand by, not because it's morally wrong, which it is, but it's not consistent with the whole reason we're here. Well, I view we in the biopharmaceutical industry is only one step removed from the dock. And so you're saying that the
0: mission here, creating new medicines, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, that's it. That's why you get out of bed in the morning. That's mm-hmm. the raison d'etre, the mm-hmm. reason you exist. Uh, not sure, uh, purely to maximize returns for your investors. That, that, of course, is a very important part of it, right. but
1: not the central mission. We are distinct from a company whose mission is to make shares and make money, all right? It is true, we are capitalist; We need to make a return to shareholders, Of course. Okay. But there is something special in what we do. Now, what you've just said goes to a broader set of issues, which is what is the role of the CEO? Do we define the role of the CEO the way Friedman did in his classical statement in the 1950s, that the only social responsibility of a CEO is to maximize profits for shareholders by any means necessary and available so long as they are legal. Full stop. Classic statement, you know, Adam Smith drawn forward 200 years, okay? Um, I think that's problematic. I don't think that's the only role. Um, for a few reasons. Um, one is... If you wear your purely capitalist hat, then you have an intrinsic interest in the functioning of the capitalist system and its functioning at the highest and best level possible. For that to be true and for that to be accomplished, all right, taking on the assumption that it will be the best for the most, right, you have to maximize the opportunity for all available talent to participate that may lead you to certain things about immigration all right half it may lead the, you half to cer- of the industry right. comes from it, right. other countries it, you may lead you to certain positions about the rights of women being able to participate half of the employees right. in the industry right if you also recognize that in most many areas of our economy particularly biopharma and high tech. We we no longer have the relationship of capital to wage labor of characteristic of the industrial revolution. Rather, it's much more of a partnership. These people bring their talents, their energies and passions to a company to benefit the shareholders. The shareholders have a special responsibility to them as well. It should lead you to different kinds of workplace practices in terms of the acknowledgement of their autonomy. And therefore, since they are human beings, they look to their leadership and say, what do we stand for? Is this an organization I'm proud to be a part of? So you have interests in social positions that are consonant with your workforce and they see you as standing up for who and what they are.
0: So you're defining a broader set of responsibilities for the CEO in our system. So you feel that. Yes. But then um, you make the decision to start writing
1: right. on it. Why? Um, well, I guess I first and foremost write for myself, for... Uh, uh, philosopher named Frank Ramsey who was one of the inventors of modern logic once said if you can't say it you can't if you can't say it you can't whistle it either and for me the sort of lemma of that was if you can't write it clearly you haven't thought it clearly well so, writing
0: forces you to think it clearly
1: writing is when you find out if you've thought clearly <laughs> right exactly and so writing is that exercise for me to see whether i've thought something through clearly and then I have like a half, if it's industry-related, I have about a half a dozen friends out there um, who I throw these things out to and say, what do you think, <laughs> right? And so the first piece in the series that I've done that was published last January in Biocentury, I think it was called Leadership and Responsibility, where a lot of this stuff is initially articulated. I just had a whole bunch of me uh, people come to me and say, you really ought to publish this. You really ought to publish it. So so I did. (laughs) That's how that came to pass.
0: Now, um, one might say, uh, what about existing organizations or channels like Bio, for instance? Isn't this part of
1: their job? So my thinking about that has evolved. So if you asked me that question last January... I would have been pounding the table saying, we're a bio and we're a pharma. Um, and in fact, in that piece I wrote last January, a part of it was called uh, The Parable of Medicaid Part D, okay, or Medicare Part D. And it was a reflection on the fact that if you go back before, in the, before there was a Part D, we were faced with the fact that people with my late, like my late mother, um, was having to make decisions about whether to buy her Lippertor or not, or because she couldn't afford it, plus the absurdity of when she then had her heart attack, she had quadruple bypass, which the government did pay for. But putting that aside, it was obvious from a moral perspective, there should be a Part D. To pay for prescription drugs,
0: pharmaceuticals are increasingly becoming an important part or of medical of m- right. medicine. That okay. they should be or, covered like those other right. things.
1: Bio, and I remember having discussions at the time when it was coming along with Carl Feldman, then the head, and we and we came out strongly. There has to we support Medicare Part D. We think there have to be certain protections built into it for the industry. Pharma initially came out against it, concerned about the potential monopoly power of the government. And so I think that was an example. <laughs> even right.
0: though this was a giant expansion of the market, and but, perceived by some but as a immediate, giveaway. But,
1: but, but even putting that aside, to stand up in the face of something that says elders should have to choose between food and drugs is wrong in modern American society. Well, I agree. So that's an example of, of how these organizations, how they get... Twisted in a knot. So you looked at this and thought uh, dysfunction, right? Right. But then, so when January of this year comes along, where is Bio? Why isn't it standing up, right? And why is it? And part of what spurred that article that I wrote was Bio made the unfortunate, in my view, and I think probably Jim Greenwood would would now agree with this statement that we applaud the approval, the appointment of Tom Price. Jim Greenwood is the president right. of BioBlock. And I the way. said, to, I said to Jim, I said, do we acknowledge? Do we congratulate him? That's different than applauding, right? Because it's not clear to me that all of us want to applaud. In any event, um, I've now come to the belief and view that the industry organizations can only do so much. They are member organizations. Not all of their members have the same views. Um, they do have a role and responsibility with respect to um, the economic interests of their country and they ha- their companies, rather, constituents, and that they have to decide where to spend their chits. Right? And there are a bunch of economic issues repatriation, lower taxes, FDA regulation, et cetera, et cetera, which are the proper concern of the um, industry organizations. And they just made the pragmatic decision that we're going to stay out of these other fights. And I've come to the conclusion that that's just the way the world is. And so if anything, it provided more of a spur, as far as I was concerned, for those of us who, in virtue of how we've spent our lives, are representatives of the interest rate, particularly leaders, that we had to speak as leaders. So there was okay. an opening here. Somebody
0: it, it, could come through here. In this case, it's you and, and Jeremy Levin taking so, some leadership.
1: So, yeah, An opening or a void. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, both, I suppose. I mean, it was more that, you know, the uh, if not now, you know, if, if not us, who have not now, when right. So, right. And, and they were, and the immigration ban was the first thing where again, it was, if not us who have not now, when
0: this was the ban <laughs> of, on people traveling from majority Muslim
1: countries, a select group of minority majority Muslim countries, not all.
0: Right. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and then you wrote again about the
1: March for science. I, I was asked to participate in the March for science, um, uh, you know, an, an interesting point there. Um, the company, Quadecibel, made the decision not to support the march because the march had become highly politicized and it was hard to separate um, support for the march with support or against or without, with anti-Trump. And there may be people here who are Trump supporters. Well, I want to get to that. Okay, So we decided as a company, not my decision, right? That the company would not provide financial sponsorship. All right. On the other hand, that people were free to organize. And in fact, a contingent did organize. Okay. And uh, go. And that I was certainly free as an individual to speak. Uh, but for example, my remarks would not be posted on the Decibel website. They might go on my blog, they might be picked up by Timmerman. <laughs> okay. In fact, I did publish right. that okay. one. Right, but I wouldn't use the organs of Decibel's official organs uh, for something like that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, to your point, it's a fine line to walk.
0: Now, I, I want to come to this point of the uh, Trump supporters or, um, mm-hmm. to, to put it even more charitably, you know, people who are are upset mm-hmm. with the establishment. Mm-hmm. Let's call, uh, this, there's an anti-establishment group of people mm-hmm. out there. And, you know, on occasion, they, they have some points mm-hmm. when they point to dysfunction mm-hmm. um, and elites, mm-hmm. uh, the, 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 the dirty word. Right. So... Um, and and the Trump phenomenon has also, in some ways, been it's had a, a positive for the industry with the appointment of Scott Gottlieb as FDA commissioner, doing some some things that many in the industry like seeing done. Mm-hmm. Um, with whether ever people in the White House know what's all <laughs> being done there, I, I don't know. Right. But um, do you do you think about how do you balance? Um, uh, your your activism?
1: Well, I think there's different aspects to that. One is I think it is important to separate, as I've suggested, when I, Stephen Holtzman, who happens to be a CEO of a company, is speaking out versus when Decibel Therapeutics is taking a position on something. All right. Uh, so I think that, It may seem a distinction without a difference. I think it's a very important difference.
0: But you are the CEO. You set the culture, the tone from the top. Uh, People look to you for cues on what's
1: Mm -hmm. okay and Mm -hmm. and not. Right. So I think saying, I believe in this stuff and I will speak to it, and at the same time saying, and I will not use decibel organs for publicizing my views, says something to my people about that they should feel free to express their views as well, and the company is not jeffing my views down their throat. And the very fact that I said, this is not my decision, it's delegated to a group of people in the company to decide how social media should be used, the company's social media, I think is sending a further message okay, to the company about it's not about the kind of tone I'm setting. Uh-huh. It's a tone, really, about a certain respect for people's personal views. Um, the other thing you said is absolutely true. The Particularly since the crash of 2008, uh, I think that a lot of us lost sight of the fact that while our 401ks may have become 201ks, They came back to at least three and a half 01Ks, right? There's a lot of people for whom it's been a 10-year depression who have been alienated, um, who feel underrepresented and whatnot. And I think that 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 was certainly expressed in the election of Trump uh, in many parts of the country. Um, I think we can distinguish that from some of the extreme elements as well that have um, come to the fore in the trump admi- in in the in the Trump era if you will all right and that, you mean like what we saw in charlottesville like we saw that- on, so yeah and also uh, i and i worry about the sheep and wolves clo- the wolves and sheep's clothes all right I would submit to you that a respectable um, white grandfatherly looking man in a suit and a tie who speaks um, respectfully about uh, conversion therapies for, for transgender individuals or gay people is a deeply frightening and problematic person regardless if they're of the fact that they wouldn't be out there holding a torch. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you've, you've, uh, you spoke, uh, you, you wrote again, you felt compelled after Charlottesville. We had a
1: moment there when uh, yeah. Ken Frazier um, yeah. decided yeah. to
0: resign from the president's council. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting way-
1: that that piece that I wrote then that Jeremy joined me in um And that one was called, at What Cost, at What Cost a Seat at the Table. Um, people reading it thought I was reacting to Charlottesville, like we can no longer have us, you know, that, that we should no longer stay at this table. The cost is too high. And actually, the point of that piece was, why did it take Charlottesville for we in the industry not to recognize that? We were becoming complicit. It well, by, as you in said, our silence. there
0: had been many positions taken that were antithetical to the industry
1: mission. Which is what I've been talking and, about for the last several minutes, right?
0: And, and so,
1: yes, why, why are you still there at the table? What is being accomplished? That's right. Or how can you? We should have. Yeah. And again, just if you think about, so to speak, the, the overall semantic content of the moment. a failure to condemn blatant racism and Nazism, and it takes a black man to be the one who says no, that's deeply problematic that it gets to that for us to take a step back and say, whoa, wait a second. So, you know, that was...
0: (laughs) The the boundaries have been pushed way, way out Mm -hmm. beyond... um, Mm-hmm. where many people imagine they, they could ever go. Right. Uh, so, <clears throat> this last uh, round, just after Labor Day, mm-hmm. you wrote about, uh, well, you circulated the DACA petition that uh, right. had originally mm-hmm. gone around the high-tech community, right. uh, pressing upon the administration to uh, not rescind this executive order from mm-hmm. the Obama era to allow mm-hmm. the so-called dreamers, right. 800,000 young people who were brought to this country uh, mm-hmm. before you know they were adults. Right. Uh, it wasn't their decision to right. break any law. Right. Um, <clears throat> they're they're now um, in some kind of legal limbo uh, unless Congress acts, which people don't think they will. Um, this is uh, the, the high tech industry mobilized quickly right. and effectively. Um, you looked around and said,
1: "What? What? Uh, again, right. avoid right an opening. Yeah, nothing was happening. Right." Uh, I think the high tech industry got out in front of it and encouraged him not to rescind DACA before he actually gave the talk saying that his position was rescission with a six month delay in implementation. But once he actually did it, all right, uh, Jeremy and I got on the phone together and say, we can't let this stand. And so I wanted to, we needed to do something to mobilize quickly. Um, And uh, the high-techs letter was there on a website. And as I said to you at the time, no pride of authorship. just going to steal the basic content of this. And get it out to CEOs and leaders in the industry. Aligned well with uh, your views. Right. Well, it's an interesting thing. If you look at that letter, its argument is purely economic. It is purely economic. There's no moral claims. There's no things about the rights of America being built on immigrants, et cetera, et cetera. It just says, here's the facts about the role that these people play. It will
0: hurt our economy. Don't do
1: it. And it was easy to say, and with respect to the biotech economy, it will have a very significant impact and doesn't resonate at all with if you look at the fact of the role that immigrants have played in our industry or children of immigrants. And so um, that, you know, within 24 hours – uh, we had the end number of 184 signatures and shipped it off to leaders of Congress and uh, the president. So Haven't you got. <laughs> <laughs> he, he hasn't uh,
0: taken your calls. Yet. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Um, so uh, you got a lot of support. I mean, 180 mm-hmm. people to sign on in uh, that short amount of time. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. I mean, you must have amassed a pretty good email list or Rolodex mm-hmm. o- over the years. A, a reasonably good percentage
1: mm-hmm. are
0: responding,
1: right. cheering you on. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I about- wouldn't say they're cheering me on. They're joining, raising their voices. <laughs> okay. Well,
0: mm-hmm. uh, what about uh, pushback? Have you gotten anybody, like people, what kind of uh, responses have you gotten from the other side?
1: Well, there are clearly in certain of these efforts, right? There have been, Uh, CEOs and leaders to whom the letters have been sent who have not signed on, right? So let's call that uh, tacit disapproval or a decision that they want to save their powder for something else or a belief that I agree, but it's not going to be effective, so what's the point? Or maybe I got so much stuff in my email or... Last, with many people in my life, they've adjusted their spam filter that it says Holtzman, it goes right there. That's probably happens in a lot of cases. In other <laughs> words, a lot of crickets. Yeah. All right. But, you know, there's going to, well, you know, of a mailing list of 350 people or 400 with about 60 outdated emails, if you're really looking at 300 getting 184, it's not that many crickets, actually. Um, I've I've had discussions with some who feel that it's not the role of CEOs to do that because they can't, they have to, they speak, it's the role of the industry association and if the associations won't do it, we shouldn't be seen as potentially undercutting them. I don't see us as undercutting this. I've said this to Jim Greenwood, is I, I view what we've been doing as individuals and groups of CEOs as complementary to, not in conflict with what they're doing. But some feel it's not appropriate. Um some feel that um that we need to re keep keep our chips <laughs> for the other fights. Tax Yeah, we don't wanna we don't wanna spend our political capital here and you will be identified as such. Uh and then I get some very wacko comments in some of my blogs, which are kind of interesting, you know.
0: Oh, just from
1: uh, yeah, like the, spammers yeah. or yeah, trolls? Like, yeah, no, just the the, the, you know, the people who think that I must be a uh, uh, a flaming gay liberal from the from the East Coast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um,
0: any anything that you've taken to heart? Any any thoughtful. Um, critique from someone you respect who said, you know, Steve, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you can run, this will run its course for a while, but you know, got to focus on your company or something like
1: that. Well, okay. So what I said earlier about the evolution of my thinking about the role of bio has come from talking with people in the industry and saying, You may be frustrated. You might have an ideal world in which everyone would raise their voice, including your industry organizations, but maybe that's not the right way to think about them. So I think that was a spurred me to, to evolve in my thinking. Okay. Um, you ought to just focus on running my company. Um, yeah, there's 24 hours in the day. I don't sleep a lot. I put a lot of hours into running my company and you know, uh, If I want to do, uh, in my spare time, this stuff, uh, that doesn't get in the way of running my company. It's only if whether these, you know, what I'll never know is whether there is someone who would be a potential corporate partner run by someone who says I'll never do a deal with a Holtzman company because of that. I can't know that fact. Is it a theoretical possibility? Yes. Mm
0: Mm-hmm they're not going to tell you yeah, they're not we, tell we're me. not going yeah. to do
1: a deal with you because yeah. Yeah. we don't like your politics right that's right so my board hasn't fired me yet so i'm okay <laughs> uh-huh
0: uh-huh how long do you think you'll keep doing this do you want to keep doing this indefinitely running decibel or well, being a political <laughs>
1: activist both <laughs> maybe there's another career here yeah. post-retirement yeah. yeah no i don't think so um I think the political activism, um, I wish it would, the need would end tomorrow. I fear that that's not the case. So, uh, I think we just have to keep our antenna up. I think there's a lot going on below the surface in terms of, uh, rescission of, Regulations about substitute regulations without adequate public comment about non-enforcement of regulations. Um, which I think are very deeply problematic. Um, uh, what are, are some th- examples? Um, well, certainly, certainly in the environmental perspective. And, I, and I, it's not that I'm a green person particularly, but if we, again, if we care about health, then I think we care about clean air and clean water. Last time I checked, that's kind of important for healthy kids, right? Uh, you know. Um, so, um, the loosening up of many of the Obama, or not even Obama, going back to Nixon EPA regulations on clean water and air and whatnot, the uh, free release now of methane gas, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, the the I worry about the the anti-scientism by the fact that so much information has been pulled down off of government websites. You've got people running around making sure that these important scientific studies that have been done are archived somewhere so that they're available. I think that's problematic. That's deeply, deeply challenging. Um, I think that... Um, Things going on with the government support, um, where you'll have state actions, and they'll come to the Supreme Court, and you'll have now amicus, amicus briefs being filed by the Justice Department on behalf of state positions that erode, particularly women's health. All right. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's I think it's going to go on.
0: It sounds like you think of this as almost like an existential threat. I mean, if we enter a world mm-hmm. that is really untethered by facts and governed by superstitions mm-hmm. and, and uh, uh, fantasies about you know, vaccines causing autism and this sort of thing, mm-hmm. that this, this could be the thing to kill the golden Goose. I mean, the, the great industry.
1: Well, yes, the industry, I, more at stake than just the industry. I think that standards, of reason, of rational argumentation, uh, and, um, respect for the individual are the predicates of a free society. And the pre- free society is the predicate of a market capitalist system. Right. and the latter probably is responsible for or in part necessary for innovation in the area of health. I think it's all wound together. I don't think you can pull these strands apart. So is that an existential crisis? You know.
0: <laughs> well, or you know, maybe more simply, I mean, we can't take it for granted. I mean, why do we have all this amazing research and development and, mm-hmm. and pharmaceutical and biotech industry in this country? I mean, mm-hmm. it goes back decades to... Yeah. I mean, people like Lyndon Johnson and fellow senators at right. post World War II, mm-hmm. um, who said, "We want this to be our our national strength," right? And, and we're reaping some of those dividends now.
1: Right. That's exactly right. So, um, so, and it's not just, and again, it's not just support for the NIH; it's support for free rational discourse, right? Of letting the facts be the determinate determine the outcome as opposed to the power of the interlocutor right. so I think those are very basic concepts of western society so, um, so, so as so for how long I'll stay at Decibel, I'm 63 now <laughs> uh, I don't know, five years, we'll see how it's going, and you know when a CEO moves on or not is really a function of what's going on at the time.
0: <laughs> well, but coming back to what you said earlier, I mean, you, you listed off a lot of issues, and I, I sort of, you know, put them in a little category here uh, that uh, they were biotech-specific issues, right. things like cloning mm-hmm. and such. Um, but these, what we're talking about now, are are much more far-reaching mm-hmm. and um, affect everybody, and so. Um, maybe, you know, back in the day, biotech executives could have looked and said, well, you know, we have a committee for that, that's looking into Dolly and, you mm-hmm. know, Holtzman's on it and mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, I don't need to worry about that. Yeah. I, I can focus just on my science and my company and, and that's hard enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but is this something that's kind of inescapable now that, that I mean, everybody needs to be, everybody in a position like you, a uh, board of directors included, mm-hmm. needs to, um, be, be paying attention. Uh, because the, it, it, it really does threaten the, the fundamentals of the industry.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you say that because I remember uh, when I joined Millennium and we were faced with these issues thinking about um, the ethical issues that are, would arrive with the availability of large-scale genetic and genomic data, I went to Carl Feldbaum, who was then head of Bio, and along with Elliot Hillback, who was a senior executive at Genzyme, we formed and then co-chaired the bioethics committee, precisely so bio would have an organ to be able to respond to and think of through issues, which, um, yeah, I don't think this can be delegated to a committee. I think this is um, much more wide-ranging and much more important. Obviously, companies and CEOs will decide how much energy they're going to put into these issues. But I would argue that if you just leave it to the big companies that have the apparatus and the Washington offices and whatnot, they're going to have a particular view. All right. And without stereotyping and being with the, Issues of potentially overgeneralizing. They will be, tend to be run by managers who have more of a focus on maximization of profit for their shareholders than some of us more entrepreneurial renegades. All right. Who have bigger ideas about what our role is in the world. Okay. Uh, as I said, it's not the general fear of generalizing. And so, um, There are many, many biotech CEOs who would have refused to sit on those Trump boards. All right. And certainly would have been off them earlier, uh, when certain actions were taken. If they had joined in the belief that they can have an impact on the discourse, right? Um, so I think more of the entrepreneurial types, um, have to raise their voices. And I think even before you're profitable, all right, um, I think you need to think about your workforce and what they are looking for in the kind of place to which they want to bring their talents. Because, again, it's not a relationship of capital to wage labor, all right? Um, they are fully partners with financial investors, um, they are deciding to invest their talents on behalf of those investors, just as investors are investing their money in those people.
0: Well, they work long and hard at these companies, and when things get tough, they stick around. And, and you know, even when, you know, it might be easier to go pick up a comparable paycheck, uh, you know, working right. at a consulting firm.
1: That, that's right. And, you know, people talk a lot about great cultures in companies. You find out if you have a great culture when the shit hits the fan and whether or not people stick and pull together or whether or not they still pull apart. So So you're building a powerful culture here too. um, uh, I think that the single most important job of the CEO is to create an environment in which great passionate people can come do their best work and do it in a context in which together they can create something which alone they couldn't. You give them that, you have to give them the opportunity for experiencing joy and meaning. Then right. they will stay because it is they own the place. They truly own it, and they have a sense of identity in the place. That's a great place to wrap up. Okay. Thanks, Steve. All right. Pleasure, Luke. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. Thanks to EBD Group for sponsoring the Long Run podcast and the Climb to Fight Cancer. Thanks also to Sanofi as the summit sponsor of the climb, and to Safinova Ventures and 5AM Ventures as the base camp sponsors of the Climb to Fight Cancer at Fred Hutch. Next on the Long Run, listen to my conversation with Steve Graham. Graham is the co-chair of the life sciences practice at the law firm Fenwick & West. He is one of the most experienced corporate and securities lawyers in the biotech industry. Graham also happens to be black. Graham recently wrote a revealing memoir called Invisible Inc., Navigating Racism in Corporate America. How did he make it to the pinnacle of American business while enduring a long series of slights, aggressions, and sometimes scary racial hostility? Don't miss this upcoming episode of The Long Run.